is The Trip That Changed Me, a podcast about trips that transform. I'm Esme Benjamin, editor of Full-Time Travel. And every other Thursday, I'll be sitting down with entrepreneurs, writers, entertainers, and everyday adventurers to discuss a journey that shifted their mindset, ignited a new calling, expanded their heart, or ushered in a new chapter. My guest today, Colin O'Brady, is probably best known for being one of the world's most recognized endurance athletes and explorers. He's a 10-time world record holder and two-time Everest summiteer, and the first person in history to cross the continent of Antarctica, solo, unsupported, and completely human-powered, an experience he wrote about in his best-selling memoir, The Impossible First. On top of that, Colin is a sought-after public speaker, entrepreneur, philanthropist, the executive producer of The Impossible Row, a feature-length documentary from the Discovery Channel, and the host of the television series Survivalists. In this episode, Colin shares the story of a post-college, round-the-world trip, a once-in-a-lifetime experience which unfortunately ended in tragedy. In Thailand, Colin was severely burned in an accident. His injuries were so bad, the doctors believed he'd have trouble ever walking normally again. But Colin proved them all wrong thanks to what he calls a possible mindset. We also discuss rejecting comfortable complacency, the importance of goal setting, and the concept behind his latest book, The 12-Hour Walk, which aims to inspire 10 million people to take a one-day transformative journey to conquer their minds and unlock their best lives. Where are you today? I'm at home in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Okay. I do love Wyoming. I feel like it's a really underrated state. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's gorgeous. So I normally like to start by asking people, where did your love of travel originate? Yeah, you know, I think when I was a kid, I uh, always, you know, dreamed of traveling the world. My my family didn't have a lot of money when I was a kid, but, you know, kind of big dreams that my parents are very supportive of that. Like just, you know, directing me to like, yeah, you know, one day you see the world. You know, I took a lot of smaller adventures when I was a kid just in and around where I was raised. My dad, he definitely used to be like, you know, the outdoors are free. And, you know, so we could, you know, drive (laughs) out to lakes and backpack and hike and go in the mountains and things like that. Portland, Oregon is, you know, surrounded by beautiful uh, outdoor environments. And then, yeah, sort of aspirations grew from there. Yeah, I went on a big round the country road trip last year with my husband and we didn't make it up to the Pacific Northwest, but it just looks amazing. It's very like misty, moody that way, right? It's got a lot of that for sure. Yeah, the time <laughs> it's uh, pretty much rains every day. Uh, I can't, can't say I miss that, but um, it's uh, it's beautiful for sure. So I was writing your bio earlier, I guess the introduction. So I was reading your bio and all the information that you sent over. And I was like, this is an impressive resume. <laughs> like not just all of your athletic achievements, but the fact that you're a Yale grad and, you know, an entrepreneur and you know, everything else. I just, I'm really curious to know where you got that sense of determination. Was that something that you always had inside you that like drive to ambition or was that something that your parents influenced you with? Yeah. You know, it's it's always hard to, you know, separate nature versus nurture, right? I think that there was a lot of really positive influences on me as a kid. Certainly, you know, my parents, they were young when they had us, but uh, very ambitious and and big dreamers in their own life. Ultimately, my mother was a quite successful entrepreneur in her own right. Um, You know, that sort of financial success of that came long after I was out of the house, but, you know, it was in that sort of energy of her, um, my stepfather, you know, dreaming up big dreams, building, creating, thinking about things, you know, taking risks, uh, all of that was sort of like steeped in my childhood. And so I 
think that that definitely played a significant impact. And, and furthermore, I think now that I've, you know, walked across Antarctica solo and climbed Everest twice and the various other expeditions and world records that I have and things like that, people love to ask my mother, aren't you afraid? You know, aren't you worried, you know, about, about your son's, you know, health and safety, which is, you know, normal question. And she's like, yeah, of course. And then she says, you know, further, but furthermore, like, you know, careful what you wish for when you tell your kid every day since he was born, you can do anything you set your mind to, you know. And so she's like, I whispered that in his ear every single day. Um, and so, you know, here's what I get as a mother. Of course, I'm worried and all these things, but I'm also equally, you know, proud of him for, you know, going out and taking on the world in that way. I love that. Taking notes for my own daughter. <laughs> um, what did you study at, at university or college? Yeah, I have an economics degree from Yale. So I studied economics, which, you know, I guess I haven't used it in the most traditional ways uh, in terms of, I guess, standard employment. I, I did for a very brief time after college work at a commodities trading firm. Uh, most of my friends, you know, went into investment banking and have been doing that for their entire careers. That was uh, 11 month stint that I did that. So not not so long. The rest of the time I've had a somewhat untraditional career. But I think that my education certainly, you know, helped me have a very, you know, broad perspective on the world. And now certainly as an entrepreneur and business fundamentals and things that I have used and adapted um, have been really beneficial. And I think, at least for me with, you know, liberal arts education, I think one of the, the best parts about a liberal arts education compared to like vocational le learning is you might not know exactly how to do something specifically. Like obviously a vocational trade school or something like that teaches you a specific skill. Um, and I'm not sure that I graduated from college with that. But a framework for thinking about the world, for, you know, for understanding the world at large, both on a macro level and a micro level, that I think has really, um, in lots of intangible ways, been really, really positive for sure. Mm, that's a good way of looking at it. And I know that you did this big round the world trip after you graduated. Had you done a, a lot of traveling before that? Or was this your first trip of that scale? Definitely the first trip of that scale. I had been out of the country. The first time I went out of the country was when I was 13 years old. And it was because I was selected to go play on this sort of elite soccer team uh, in Europe for a couple of weeks, a, a US team, but that was going to traveling to Europe to play soccer, um, which was my first kind of inroad into that and, and seeing seeing the world outside of the United States. Uh, and again, like I said, my family didn't have a lot of money. So my parents didn't join me on that trip. I was just with, you know, the the coaches and the chaperones of that trip. But that certainly opened my mind up to seeing the world. I went to Denmark on that trip in England. And, you know, somewhere in and around that same age, you know, early teenager, I was like, I want to I want to see the world one day, you know, I want to like see what's out here and kind of get lost out in the world and interact with different cultures and different people. And so my North Star, certainly through high school and college was I want to save up enough money so that when I graduate from college, I, you know, have a few thousand dollars in the bank and can go travel. I certainly didn't think it would ever be something extravagant, but just enough to, you know, buy a cheap plane ticket, live in youth hostels, hitchhike around, you know, that kind of a thing. And that's what I did. So I painted houses every single summer in high school and college. And, you know, I needed to pay for certain parts of school books, et cetera, that kind of stuff. But then I eventually, you know, graduated with, you know, a few thousand dollars to my name and went and bought a one-way plane ticket around the world and set off on my first, you know, kind of big, big trip around the world um, by myself, which was, uh, you know, certainly, as I know, we'll talk about a very formative experience in a lot of ways. You strike me as somebody who probably has to be or is naturally pretty organized. <laughs> I don't know if that's true, but did you do yeah. like meticulous planning for this trip or were you just kind of going with the flow? Like, did you know each of your stops and where you were going to go within each country? No, completely opposite. Like wide, wide open canvas. I I really had no plans actually. Um, I went to uh, 
do you, there was a student travel agency in the U.S. called STA Travel. Are you familiar yes. with that? Yeah. You know, I was going to say, I bu- I did this exact same trip, but the reverse. So I started in Thailand and then like went around through the South Pacific Islands and then flew home. Nice. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I went exactly the same. I went to STA and like sat down back in the days when you would like sit down with exactly a travel with agent. Exactly, the person, totally. Yeah. What the plan was, yeah. Yeah, and I was like, I basically was like, okay, so I know I want to go to New Zealand and Australia and then probably to Southeast Asia. I don't really have that much of a plan beyond that. Now, basically, it was like, what's the cheapest way to get me there? And you know, for those that are slightly younger, they can't believe you like went in and like talked to a person <laughs> about a trip. Um, but you know, here I am, and they were like, "Yeah, we can get you to New Zealand really cheap." And then from there, like two months later, I can get you a ticket out of New Zealand to Australia, and then up to Thailand. And I had no return flight, but those were each like, and those were all like two month blocks, like two months in New Zealand, two months in Australia, two months, you know, getting to Thailand with no return flight was sort of like the basics of it. And it was a paper ticket too. They were like, you know, <laughs> hand me a paper ticket. And they're like, don't lose this. Um, Cause that's it. It's not like a backup. It's not like there's in somebody's system. There's like a piece of paper, the bottom of my backpack. Um, and so that was literally the, the only plan. And the interesting sort of twist in that was I was given they were like but to get to new zealand actually you need to fly through fiji and you can have up to a 10-day free layover the way that this cheap student fare because it was like combining one-way tickets basically and i had never ever you know planned to go to fiji by any stretch of the imagination and i was like sure why not like this is like my first little wink from the universe of just kind of like say yes and so i was like sure and they're like great well how long do you want to stay and i said well you can say it i can stay 10 days i'll stay 10 days great <laughs> And so my first stop um, on this round the world trip by myself when I was you know 22 years old was actually in Fiji and on a tiny little sand atoll. There's 333 islands in Fiji, and I just like picked one. I was like a guy was like taking a boat out. I can go check out this island for a couple nights. And I was like, great, you know, basically throwing darts at a wall. And I ended up meeting my now wife uh, in that moment. So, oh my god, uh, really? Yeah. So that obviously is straight out the gate. Uh, I'd say success because here we are 15 years later still together. Well, so this trip really changed you in multiple ways. Sure, for sure. For sure. (laughs) Wait, so she was on the same little island in Fiji as you were? Yeah, exactly. She was, uh, she's American, but she was um, studying abroad at the University of Sydney. She was a junior in college at the time and had taken a trip with a couple of her girlfriends um, to Fiji for basically their spring break. And uh, (laughs) I ended up over there in this little tiny island. All there was was like a tiny little youth hostel and a bar. Uh, You could walk around the entire circumference of the island in five minutes. So it wasn't too hard for us to find one another. And, you know, we just struck up a conversation and we were just there for overlap for only two days which was great. You know, we'd really dropped in and had an amazing time together. But, you know, she was 20 years old as a college junior traveling around the world. And I was at the beginning of a trip around the world. It was kind of like, ah, like, who knows? The universe will bring us back together. Um, and I was traveling, this kind of dates the story, it was 2007 pre-smartphone. So I was traveling with no cell phone, which wasn't that uncommon then. And it's like now that you've never happened, but. Oh my God, no but wasn't phone. that the best? Like, it was the best, the best. Like <laughs> so I say nice. to people, I was like, you can never get that back. Like, and even if you chose to travel without a cell phone, you would, every other person that you would be around would have it like, oh yeah, I'm FaceTiming back home to my mom. I'm saying this picture on Instagram, this, like none of that stuff existed. Like I traveled with a digital camera. <laughs> yes. I would go to, you know, internet, internet cafes. cafes. Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, you know, once a, you know, once a couple weeks for, you know, an hour to quickly check alive. an email. Or, yeah. <laughs> yeah, do a Skype call. Like I'm alive, I'm fine. But like, you're like out there the world, which like really forces you to talk to people, really forces you to, you know, interact with the places you are. So yeah, Jen and I, uh, my wife, we, we had this amazing two days in Fiji and, and then she left and I was going to travel to New Zealand and I had a little journal 
And she wrote down her you know, number in there and was like, I'm in Australia for the next few months. And I didn't quite know if the timing worked out or not, but I you know, hitchhiked through New Zealand for about two months, which was amazing. Um, you know, had an incredible experience all the way from the North Island to the South Island, hitchhiking around. You know, just literally random people would pick me up. Sometimes people would like take me to their house to have like dinner with their families or whatever. Um, but it was a great, great experience. But you know, all the while I was still thinking about this woman I had met in Fiji. And so when I flew to Australia, it had been a couple of months. I had her number written down. I landed in the Sydney airport and, you know, put a couple of gold coins into a payphone of all things and uh, <laughs> called her and she answered. And she was like, hey, and I was like, hey, what's up? Uh, this is Colin. I remember from Fiji a couple months ago. And she's like, oh my God, what's up? How are you? And I was like, I'm in Sydney. Like, are you still here? And she's like, yeah, hundred percent. I'm out at this bar in Bondi with my friends. Like, come meet us. So I like, like literally went with like my backpack, just landed in Australia and went and hung out with her that night. Um, and because my plans were flexible, we ended up, you know, again, having an amazing time together. And I thought I was going to go travel all over Australia, which I ultimately did later. But before, um, I basically spent a month, you know, in Sydney with her and falling in love. And it was a beautiful, beautiful uh, time oh in, in our young lives. How yeah. fated. I love it. It's like Colin and Jan, so cute. <laughs> <laughs> so then after Australia you headed to Thailand, right? And you were going to yep. do that like Southeast Asia loop that everybody does yep, backpacking exactly. around. Yeah. So, you know, Thailand is probably one of my favorite places in the world. Like I've been there seven times. I'm guessing it's not one of your favorite places based <laughs> on what happened. Yeah. Um, but maybe you could talk a bit about like what happened leading up to that fateful night. Yeah. So I left Australia and I went to Thailand. I actually, again, with the weird layovers from the student travel ticket, I had like a four day layover in Brunei, actually, not a country that a lot of people have been to. And and for good reason, there's like not that much to do there. But I hung out there for four days, uh, went over to these went over to some islands in Malaysia, and then ended up in, in Thailand. And exactly that was like, that's where my flights ended. I thought after that, I would probably fly down on Nepal or Central Asia or something like that. But um, I was planning exactly by land to do the exact circuit that so many people do, you know, Thailand, Cambodia, Vietnam, Laos, mm-hmm. uh, loop through there. And uh, a really close friend of mine, actually, a childhood friend of mine, Hugh, who was actually traveling with my sister, who's now married to my sister, one of my best friends from childhood married my sister, and they were had just completed that loop. And she was going to travel with Nepal and he was like, oh, I'm going to go meet up with Colin and travel with him for a couple of weeks. And so we met up in Bangkok, which was awesome because I've been like traveling alone. I met so many different people, but of course it's kind of fun to like see a, a close friend from home. And he had been in Thailand a bunch already. Um, and so he was kind of like, kind of knew the lay of the land in Thailand a little bit as I was kind of finding, you know, my footing. And I was like, what do you want to do? And we both had always talked about scuba diving. Him and I painted houses together. So both of us had like kind of been on this sort of similar trajectory, like you know, as kids, we were painting houses together, talking about traveling, all this kind of stuff. And then we eventually... Um, went to, went to Thailand or sorry, we were in Thailand. And he was like, let's go, let's go get our scuba dive certifications. Um, like that would be fun. And so we went down to the Gulf of Thailand to, uh, Koh Tao to do, uh, scuba diving, uh, which was, which was great. And we, you know, got there and, and ended up doing like this four day scuba dive certification course, um, which was, which was wonderful. And then as, as I know, you know, what happens next, then, then everything went wrong, uh, basically. <laughs> I mean, so those, those three islands, um, Koh Samui, uh, Koh Panyang and Koh Tao, that's like, I mean, not so for Koh Samui, Koh Samui is kind of a bit more, bit more upmarket and there's a lot of big resorts there. 
But Copanyang is where the full moon beach party yeah. started, right? And I know that pretty much everywhere, like any beach in Thailand now, they'll have like some sort of full moon celebration and sometimes a black moon and sometimes a half moon. <laughs> so yeah. any excuse for a celebration. Party. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it's just crazy now. When you, I mean, I would never do this. But when I think back to when I was young and I would go there, the fact that they serve like buckets of alcohol. Oh my God, yeah. And it's just, it's total carnage. Like everyone is so drunk and it's just complete madness. I once arrived on Koh Panyang and it was the morning after the full moon party and I didn't realize. So I headed down to Hadron Beach where the main party right. is because I, at that time, my favorite beach, I had to take a boat there. There was no road and mm -hmm. I was with my family and they were like, oh my God, it was like a scene from Saving Private Ryan. There was like people oh, like passed like out. Like, everywhere. People literally like bleeding, like injured. Oh, yeah. Just, oh my God, it's chaos. But the, uh, yeah. Well, it's funny because the reason we went to Kotao when we did is we were, it was like going to line up with being at the full moon party at Copenhagen. Like we were like, okay, if we're in Kotao for four days and then like the next, you know, two days after that is the full moon party. So we'll get like, that was definitely the the plan, uh, which is part <laughs> of why we went there. It's funny you say that. Uh, we'll get into what happens to me in Kotao in a second, but I have to fast forward, which is I have been back to Thailand. Um, it was probably like maybe eight or 10 years after this. So I'm like 30 or in my early thirties at this point. Um, and I went back and I went back with Jenna, my wife. And Jenna had also done that backpackers loop, not the same time as me, but when she was in Australia, after being in Australia, she went up there, like, again, not the same time, but with a group of her girlfriends. So we had both been in Thailand as like young, like backpackers. And now here we are like 10 years older in this story. And we land in Thailand, uh, we're in Bangkok and we're staying in a nice hotel. We're staying at the Shangri-La, which is like, not at all, like what our experience was like, you know, when we were like backpacking on the Koh San Road. <laughs> and I said to her, I said to her, I was like, man, like, we used to be cool. Like we used to like be like young backpackers, like, you know, getting out, getting after it, like in the world, you know? And she's like, yeah, but like now we're in a different phase of life. And I was like, nah, nah, nah. One night while we're here, we're going to the Kosan road and we're going to like party like a couple of backpackers. And she was like, okay, like great, whatever. And so we go to Kosan road. And the reason I bring this up is we were like, she's like, well, what are we gonna do? And I was like, obviously we're drinking buckets, like 100%. <laughs> like that is what we're doing. And so we sit in like, you know, it's like, like they like in those like little tables, like everyone's shoulder to shoulder. You're talking to like different, like young people. Like we're trying to like pretend like we're like young backpackers. Someone's like, oh, how have we been traveling? How long you whatever? And we're like, oh yeah. Like <laughs> so oh, funny. God. And we drink buckets and we get blackout. Like we get so drunk. Um, like I hadn't been in so long, but it was like, I was so, so blacked out. Like Jenna was like, we got, I gotta get you out of here. Like whatever, just like a complete mess on the streets. And the next morning we woke up in our beautiful hotel. I have never in my life been that hungover, like oh. ever, like just so rough. And Jenna was like, just making fun of me the whole day. She's like, yo, you wanted to see what it was like? I was like, how did we used to do this? Like, how was this like a thing that like we did? <laughs> too old and too bougie now to do to live like that anymore. Exactly. But just like you said, like you go back with your family and you're like, oof, like, is this what it was like? Like, but at that phase, you know, traveling around, it's like all I was doing was partying. But sure, there was some uh, some layers of that. So anyways, the moral of that story is when you pass out of this phase of life, don't try to don't try to relive it. Because, it's, it's, you know, it's not the same. <laughs> it's really not the same. There's definitely a threshold. And I want to say it's literally like on your 30th birthday yeah. when you're just like, oh, I, I can't stay in these places anymore. Yeah, I'm good. Yeah, yeah exactly. I think I'm too fancy now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
but such a like, but that on the contrast to that like so many of amazing life experiences as a result oh of, yeah like, having no money and being lost out in the world and just the best like, of meeting times people that are also in the same like place in their life and it's just like so 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 good so sure. good so to take you back to Kotal yeah so uh 10 years previous to the famous bucket incident on the coast <laughs> um we were uh yeah David and I had just finished our scuba diving uh certification and actually weren't uh we're not drinking just because we've been doing scuba diving and whatever and we we're just having dinner uh on the beach there and we saw these guys start to light on fire a flaming jump rope um, which if you've been to the full moon party place, like it's like, it's all too common, but like you tell people like who've never been there, they're like, that's crazy. Like, why did you do that? And like a lot of people were doing it. It wasn't, it's not like, uh, mm-hmm. like some people, when I tell them, like I got, I was jumping a flaming jump rope. They think, they think like, you're an idiot. And I'm like, yes, I am an idiot. I'm not trying to like, say that. <laughs> but, but I'm one of many. I'm, but I'm one of many idiots. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, I didn't just like feel like you and your friend lit a rope on fire and started jumping. Like, what did you think was going to happen? I'm like, not exactly what happened. But like, basically, if you haven't been to Thailand, it's very common, like 20 foot rope, like a double dutch, like when you're a kid, like big, huge rope and like everyone's jumping under it, whatever. And so. I guess somewhat lulled into a false sense of security or just because we were 22 years old and didn't have fully formed prefrontal cortex yet. We were like, great, let's do this. And so we were jumping under this rope and it had recently been lit actually. And I think that was actually one of the biggest problems because of course people trip on it, people slip, it knocks into people and usually just bounces off people like real quick. Like, you know, kind of like your candle finger through a candle flame. Like you can like put it through a flame. It doesn't really have any effect. Um, but for me, unfortunately, it went terribly wrong when the rope, um, it tripped me and then there was excess kerosene still on the rope that hadn't burned off. And then that splattered me all the way up to my <sighs> neck. Um, and I lit pretty much instantly on fire all the way up to my neck. I was barefoot shorts on, but then all my clothes were also on fire as well. Um, kind of all the way up to my neck, um, completely on fire. And thankfully, <clears throat> you know, survival mode kind of kicked in when I needed it most. And I jumped uh, up and ran into the ocean to extinguish the flames, but not before about 25% of my body was burned, um, primarily my legs uh, and my feet. So, um, and it, you know, you've been to this part of Thailand. It's like the one thing to be in Thailand, which there's plenty of remote parts, but you're in the Gulf of Thailand, in a, you know, like you said, not an upmarket like place. Um, and there's no proper hospital on the entire island of Koh Tao. So I instead had, instead of having an ambulance ride, I had a moped ride down a dirt path to a one room nursing station that one room nursing station you know i underwent you know basically they you know gave me some basic you know medical treatment but there's not a lot they could do there and a lot of reasons why people you know die from burns is infections um and so you're just in a pretty unsanitary place and you know they're, they're doing their best it's not like their fault at all it's my fault for being in the circumstance but there just wasn't like a oh immediate you know healthcare, like you might sort of expect uh, living in the United States, it's like you can kind of like get to a hospital or something like that. And like, that was not the case uh, where I was. And then ultimately via, via pickup truck, via boat, I was moved to not a night, not about like a boat where all the other tourists, you know, tourists are on. Oh yeah. God. I was moved to Koh Samui, which has a slightly more medical facility. So not like a lot greater. They have a hospital there that's mostly for like dive accidents and like small little things that happen there. But my body was much too weak to be moved at all from there. And ultimately in Koh Samui, uh, underwent eight surgeries in this tiny little hospital where there was, you know, a cat running around my bed and across my chest in this makeshift sort of ICU. So it was uh, a pretty, pretty intense place to go through such a traumatic physical event for sure. Did you stay there or were you transported to Bangkok eventually? 
so the kind of a massive sort of turning point uh, in the story is, you know, the the fourth or fifth day, my mother, she she arrived, you know, like obviously my buddy had called her and told her the situation and, you know, she, she got on a you know plane, but, you know, to be able to get from the United States all the way to Costa Samoa and it's, it takes some time to kind of figure that out and unpack. And like I said, it's not like we had cell phones and like, oh, drop this GPS point or whatever. It's like a Skype call in the middle of the night to like be like, hey, I think, we're, uh, you know, it's bad not the phone call you want to get as a mother. I know you as a new mother, probably that not, not want looking forward to that part of motherhood. Um, hopefully it doesn't happen, but yeah, she, she shows up and I know now that she, you know, is really crying and pleading with the doctors for sort of any semblance of good news. Obviously there's a cultural and a, somewhat of a language barrier, you know, it's just, it's a scary situation and I'm just so helpless in that state. Um, but she actually never showed me, uh, her own fear. Uh, some way, you know, she instead came into my hospital room every single day with sort of this huge smile on her face. And this is like huge sort of air of positivity, daring me to dream about the future, because I was not only physically downward spiraling, I was definitely emotionally deeply, deeply downward spiraling um, in this moment, for sure. In that moment, she kind of walked me, you know, in the next in the next few days, both in Koh Samoy, and then on the eighth day, I was transferred to Bangkok. They couldn't get me back to the United States, but they figured they could transfer me by one hour versus the medical uh, airplane, kind of like a medical air ambulance uh, to Bangkok, which that just moving me one hour almost nearly killed me. Um, but I got to Bangkok, which is much better medical facilities by the time I was there, but I was still eight plus days on the journey at this point. And throughout this period of time, I was in that Thai hospital, you know, in the serious tier hospitals for, um, you know, well over a month. And during this entire time, my mom was just kind of like, what do you want to do when you get out of here? Let's set a goal. Let's look towards the future. And I was kind of like, what are you talking about? They, you know, the doctor walked in on day five and looked at me and goes, I hate to tell you this kid, but you'll probably never walk again normally. Um, they thought the burns were so bad to my ligaments, my ankles, my knees, et cetera, that I was never going to regain full strength and mobility um, in my legs. Terrible diagnosis for anybody. Um, I was a you know nationally ranked swimmer and athlete, so I was very much like in my body, right? It was like a very huge part of my identity. And then an instant from this one stupid thing, traveling as a kid, um, you know, an instant my life was really transformed and changed. Um, and so that was that was tough. But then my mother walked through this visualization. I closed my eyes there in the Thai hospital, and I said, she said, just tell me the first thing you see, anything, anything positive when you get out of here. And I said, well, I just pictured myself crossing the finish line of a triathlon, and she was like, she could have easily been like, yeah, I said, set a goal, but you know, maybe something <laughs> a little more realistic. Uh, but she didn't say that. Instead, she was like, great. You know what? That's what you're going to do. Some way, sometime you're going to finish the triathlon. In fact, she goes, you should start training right now. And I have this picture of me in the Thai hospital with a Thai doctor. My mom goes, Hey doc, my son needs to start training. He's like, what? He goes, bring him in some weights. He needs to start training. And I have this picture of me lifting these 10 pound dumbbells over my head, this Thai doctor with a look on his face being like, someone needs to slap some sense in a stupid American kid. Like he's never going to walk again normally. Like this is ridiculous. Um, but that, that goal was really set in my mind in that moment. So how did your mom know how to do that for you? Because I feel like it could easily have been that you were so down that she was trying to put on like a positive spit on everything that you could have been like, no. Like, I just need to wallow for a while. Please get your positivity out of my face. But she must have known that you would respond in that way. Or did, or was it just something that she'd experienced in her own life? Yeah, I mean, I think in, in some level, you know, there's a risk there. And then there was actually part of me that was, you know, at least at first defiance of that. Like, I was kind of like, what are you talking about, mom? Like, life as I know, it's over. Like, look what I did. I'm such an, you know, it's definitely, you know, physical pain was immense, immense. But I started to realize that, 
the emotional pain was worse and worse, right? Like I, I'm such a firm believer that really so much of our human experience exists in our minds. And I was really bought into this diagnosis and I was going to walk normally again. And that like, who am I going to be without that? But my mother knows just from raising me again, we talked about earlier about her, you know, kind of daring me to dream throughout my entire life. And also, you know, for her realizing how goal oriented I was. And she was definitely a part of creating that as a young kid for me uh, as a sort of a framework. But then of course, extending that through young adulthood at this phase of my life was like, Colin needs like a goal. Like he needs something to like fix his mind on to like really move forward here. And that's why she said, you know, it wasn't like, it was kind of, what do you want to do when you get out of here? It was more specifically like, let's set a goal about something, an outcome that you can work toward um, in the face of this massive adversity. Um, and so- yeah, I mean, I think it was really, really important and impactful, you know, particularly as we we can, you know, go back into Thailand, but fast forward to sort of complete the loop on the story was, you know, I was in the Thai hospital for, like I said, uh, well over a month, and I finally was transferred back to the United States, was in a wheelchair, was carried on and off the plane, still hadn't taken a single step, then through... Um, you know, a series of really painful moments. My mother kind of helped me walk again, take my first few steps. Literally, she would take a, t- a chair from our kitchen table. I'd be in a wheelchair and she would say, today, you need to figure out how to get one step from your wheelchair to the one chair in front of you. Like that's your only job for like the whole day. And then the next day she moved the chair like a few steps away. And the next day, a few steps after that. Um, and it, it was it was significant, you know, literally step by step. And as cliche as that sounds, but all the while I was like, one day I'm going to race a triathlon. One day I'm going to race a triathlon. And then I eventually moved to Chicago to take a job that, that I said a short-lived job in finance, um, trying to just like move on with my life. Like, shit, like I took this trip and it screwed up and, you know, I should, I should go, I don't know, get out of my parents' basement and try to move my life forward. So I took this job in finance in Chicago, signed up for the Chicago triathlon and 18 months after being burned in this fire, I uh, signed up for the Chicago triathlon. Uh, raced the Chicago triathlon, finished the Chicago triathlon. And then to my complete and utter surprise on that day, I didn't just finish the race, but I actually won the entire Chicago triathlon, placing first out of nearly 5,000 other participants on the day. That's unbelievable. <laughs> so yeah, it was a, a wild, a wild ride for sure. If your idea of the perfect Vegas night out is the classic combo of dinner and a show, Aria Resort and Casino makes the experience completely seamless. Start your evening at Carbone, a classic Italian-American restaurant which has these theatrical tableside preparations of certain dishes. For example, they will actually flambe your dessert right there in front of you. And after you've eaten, continue your night with a show at nearby Dolby Live or the T-Mobile Arena, both of which are just a 10-minute walk from the resort. To find out more, visit aria.com. That's aria.com to start planning your Las Vegas winter break at Aria. I can't even imagine like getting how you got from A to B in 18 months. I feel like so many people would have just been like, you know what, this is me now. (laughs) To have that kind of aspiration and to achieve it and to win, it's, it's so impressive. It's amazing. Yeah, thanks. And, you know, it's interesting to reflect on that. It's like, you know, I look at that moment, you know, of course, there was moments in the Thai hospital. And this is obviously about traveling, right? This podcast, it's like, there's moments going like, wow, all of my classmates went and took like, real jobs out of college. And I decided, Mm -hmm. I'm not going to take a job. And I'm going to go, go travel on a shoestring budget, 
And at first it seemed so great. I met this beautiful woman who ended up being my wife and all these other things. But like the net net of that was like, I'm home in a wheelchair, bandaged from the waist down, tail between my legs. My friends have moved on with their life. And here I am in like my parents' basement, unable to walk. Like it's very easy in that moment to be like, man, I should have never taken that trip, right? Like what a mistake. But my mom helped me reframe that. And then ultimately, you know, as as life has played out, certainly by the time I'm in Chicago and I win that triathlon, you know, now I sit here with, you know, 10 world records all, all set using those same legs that were burnt in a fire. You know, people ask me all the time when they interview me, like, so if you had a time machine, would you go back and tell yourself to not jump the rope, right? Or not take the trip even. And I've thought about that, right? And, and my answer is pretty simple, which is, you know, I wouldn't wish the, the, that burn accident or the pain that it caused my family or the people in my close vicinity, my community, you know, I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy. That said, the challenge of that, and certainly the guidance from my mother in overcoming that taught me some of life's most valuable lessons. And I don't think I'm here with 10 world records. I ultimately went on to become a professional triathlete after that for six years, raced the U.S. national team, tried to make the Olympics, you know, walked across Antarctica, all these things. I wouldn't have done that had I not been in the burn accident. Right. And so it's this strange sort of polarity between sometimes the most challenging things in our life, you know, teach us life's most valuable lesson and, you know, certainly deep gratitude to my mother. But I, uh, I write about this in, in my newest book called the, the 12 hour walk and it's kind of one of the core principles. It's about, there it was a book about mindset and how we all have sort of these reservoirs of untapped potential inside of us to achieve extraordinary things. And I frame this concept, really what I experienced with my mother in the Thai hospital uh, called what I call a possible mindset, which is, I, and just find that as an empowered way of thinking that unlocks a life of limitless possibilities, right? Like even in the hardest moments, if you can believe in limitless possibilities and shift your mindset toward that, even when facing giant obstacles, there is so much on the other side of that that can be deeply, deeply rewarding. And in a lot of ways, even more uh, exponentially positive than you could ever have dreamed possible. I love that idea, the possible mindset. And as you said, you've achieved so many different things since that horrible incident in Thailand, from summiting Everest twice, to walking all the way across Antarctica, to all kinds of stuff. Is there one of the physical feats that you've competed that feels particularly meaningful to you? Yeah, I mean, I think that they all, you know, in their own ways are are deeply impactful and beautiful. You know, you know, one of them that's that's not a world record even. Um, but I my second summit of Everest was with my wife. And so to have that experience, you know, with her, she's not like a a core climber. That's not a huge part of her identity, but you know, that's a whole longer story. But basically, long story short, her and I summited together last year. And that was, you know, an amazing experience that I'll always cherish. But in terms of my own sort of personal accolades or those, you know, personal accomplishments, the solo crossing of Antarctica really um, is probably what I'm most certainly what I'm most known for in the world, but also most proud of just in the fact that it was a world first, you know, no one in history had ever completed that crossing. People had tried for um, decades and decades, you know, people had died attempting the crossing, people had run out of food and had to get uh, evacuated. Um, and for a long time, people just thought it was just, you know, humanly impossible to to do it because I was doing something not just I was doing it solo, um, but also called unsupported. So no resupplies of food or fuel along the way, and then nothing to propel you. So no, you know, dogs or kites or anything like that. It's literally mono y mono, um, pulling all your slides. Uh, supplies behind you. And for me, that ended up being 375 pounds of basically food or fuel to survive out in Antarctica alone for uh, nearly two months. Um, and, you know, lots of stories in there, obviously, but that the challenge of that really, you know, to your question of like, what am I most proud of? I feel like that, you know, I was 33 when I did that and it was 2018. 
it required every lesson that I had been through in my entire life to pull that off. Meaning, of course, all the lessons I'd learned as an athlete and how to push my body, but also through mindset and 10 years of a deep meditation practice and drawing on the burn accident and on and on and on. It was like, literally, I feel like, you know, if you have a hundred arrows in your quiver that you had to shoot, like I had to shoot every single arrow that I possibly have and just barely made it to the other side alive. And in that way, it's rewarding, right? Because it really was a true test of everything sort of in my, you know, mind, body and spirit leading up to that point. I mean, that it sounds, it's so impressive, but it also sounds kind of dangerous. And some of the stuff yeah. you've, you've attempted or you've completed has been dangerous. Like, didn't you, you tried to scale, uh, what's the mountain called? K, K2? Is that what it's called? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, in the winter. Year. Yeah, attempted. We were over there trying to be the first people in history to ever climb K2 in the winter. K2 is the second tallest mountain in the world. So just a little bit smaller than Mount Everest, but it's Way a more lot dangerous. more dangerous, mm -hmm. um, a lot more technical. And then, of course, usually it's climbed in the summer, but it's never been climbed in the winter. So obviously the challenge and the danger of that was certainly amplified by then attempting it in winter. And isn't it something like one in six people who tries to scale the mountain doesn't make it and dies? Mm -hmm. So when you hear a statistic like that, <laughs> When you're thinking about doing this, this thing, how does that not deter you? Yeah, I mean, I think that, of course, that that makes it really challenging um, and scary. This expedition in particular, uh, ultimately, in the end, went horribly wrong. And I lost five of my friends over there. Five of my friends died on that that expedition, which is certainly a trauma that I'm still carry with me every single day. But also, it's interesting, you know, and on the flip of that is, you know, if you think about climbing mountains, you know, and, and certainly that doesn't have to be everyone's thing. It's, I don't, I don't think of myself as some like adrenaline junkie or something like that, but stakes, right? Like if those stakes weren't there, it wouldn't be as interesting. Like it wouldn't be as interesting. If someone said to you, Hey, you can climb Mount Everest and there's a hundred percent chance you're going to make it to the top. And there's a hundred percent chance you're not going to have any injuries. You're not going to get frostbite and you're going to be alive. Like climbing Mount Everest would be far less interesting sure like the view would be beautiful from the top but like all of the like sort of the entire like journey of that experience and i think that you know in a lot of ways you know i think life life is that way right like you know you're a new mother and i'm i'm sure that and i know from you know all the new mothers that i know like it's freaking hard like it's hard you're exhausted the baby's crying and it's also beautiful, right? Like those two things, you know, are in in contrast to each other. And part of the fulfillment of having a child isn't just like the blissful, cuddly, laughing moments. It's like the entire arc of that journey. I sort of come to think about life um, on this sort of spectrum of one to 10, you know, one being our lowest low moments, you know, the burn accident in Thailand, or many of the experiences I had in Antarctica, being alone and starving and afraid and all this, right? And the tens being the high highs, right? Like the birth of a first child or reaching some significant achievement, winning the Chicago triathlon, crossing Antarctica solo, falling in love, you know, like these are the tens. And we all want tens. We all want tons of tens in our life. Wow, we want, I just want tens, 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 tens. But when I think about my tens, I realize that they're connected with the ones. Like I don't generally experience a 10 in spite of my ones, I experiencing them because of my ones. I experienced that in this, and this podcast is about a trip that changed you. I experienced them. You experienced an amazing trip of a lifetime because you had the ambition and gumption to do something outside of your comfort zone, to try something, to get lost in the world, to fail, to have something bad happen, right? And 
I think too often in life, people are stuck in what I call the zone of comfortable complacency between four and six. Just like, you know, you've got a job, you don't love it, you don't hate it. It's just like a five every day, like five, 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 five. Or maybe you're in a relationship and you're, you know, living with your your partner. It's not toxic. It's not abusive, but it's just fine. Like you're cohabitating, like it's fine. Just like you watch Netflix at night, whatever, like five, 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 five. Like people are so afraid of being alone or they're so afraid of upending their career because that's what they studied for or something like that, that they don't want to experience a one. But when you take the ones off the table, you also take the tens off the table. And so to full circle on your question, you know, you said, basically, you're asking me, like, aren't you afraid of dying? Aren't you afraid of the risk? You know, people ask me that all the time, like, aren't you afraid of dying? My answer to that is I'm absolutely afraid of dying. I don't want to die. But what I'm far more afraid of is not fully living is not fully living and to to live a life of only fives to me is to live in a place that is neither of those peak arcs and i would rather experience all the ones so i can experience all the tens too yes a hundred percent you don't get the tens without the ones that is very very true what a good way of putting it i'm trying to imagine like what is colin's domestic situation like like how how long are you actually at home and like how are you planning your next trip and how do you deal with the times when you are just coasting and it is just a five, five, five for a while. Yeah. And again, to make the, to, to double down on that point, I, I also don't think I'm only seeking those extremes, right? Like mm. five is a good place to be some of the time, right? It's where you rest. It's where you recover. It's where you create, it's where you build from. Um, and so the point is not to only live in these polarity of these, like it's the worst day of your life or the best day of your life. That's not the point, but it's to have the full solar peak arc. Yeah. You know, fortunately uh, over the last you know, decade plus, Jenna and I have worked together. So all the, you know, expeditions that we've built with sponsorship and large media and our nonprofit that's tied into all these expeditions and our various entrepreneurial pursuits that have been very successful over time, she's been deeply involved in, you know, been my, you know, right-hand person, business partner in the entire thing. And so even when I'm, you know, out in Antarctica, I joke to Jenna, I say, everyone says I was alone out there. And I'm like, I was never alone out there. Like you walked every single step with me and, and not just from a, you know, loving spouse. Like, I love you. I believe in you, but she was in the details. She knew exactly how much food I ate every single day. We would talk on a satellite phone when I was having a hard time. Like she was mapping the whole thing out. She was, you know, watching my mental health, like whatever. She was like in it, like in it, in it, the experience with me. And so I think part of what makes, you know, our domestic situation uh, to answer your question directly work is that, it's not like, oh, I'm off doing my thing and she's doing her. Like we're very like intertwined in each other's life. And hence why ultimately we, you know, we climbed Everest together because it was like, let's try to make as many of these adventures, you know, collaborative and together as we possibly can, which has been really beautiful um, and meaningful. And yeah, you know, for me, you know, home is an interesting question. You know, I have a really beautiful home um, in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. I stare out at the Tetons every day. I feel very fortunate to live where I live, but I travel all the time. You know, like I'm, I'm on the road you know, at least 50% of the time when I'm not home, um, you know, and sometimes those are big trips and these big expeditions. Sometimes those are bouncing around the country for speaking engagements, other, you know, professional commitments and things like that. But, you know, I feel just as much at home on the road as I do, you know, at home, at home. Um, and, and that's, it's not necessarily a criticism or something, somebody's way of doing it is different. It's just my way of doing it. And I think, you know, if I really get into the psychobabble of that, you know, my parents were divorced very amicably and they raised us eight blocks away from each other in Portland, Oregon. And so I was in and out of my mom and dad's house constantly in both of their houses, but I was sort of like always moving back and forth between one place and another place. And so home for me, 
is more of a feeling than it is a location. Um, and so if Jen and I are out in the world traveling for some expedition, like I, I'm just as at home, if not even more home there than I am, you know, in my quote unquote home or my home address. How did you cope when the pandemic first happened? Like, uh, were you in the middle of planning your next big challenge? Did you have to put that on ice for a while? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a, it's a great question. And it's, it's ultimately the, the origin story for my newest book. So I'll, I'll, I'll happily share it. So it was tough. I mean, it, it was really tough is the long story short. So my first book, which is called The Impossible First, which is about my Antarctica crossing, um, had come out in January of 2020. And I had been on book tour and the book uh, had become a New York Times bestseller. So it was, you know, very popular. Congrats. And thank you. I was doing really well. And I was, you know, out doing all these sort of public events and appearances, book tour and everything like that. And then COVID hit. And just before I knew it, like I had all these dates on the calendar of all these book events and this publicity and the media and all this kind of stuff. And just like immediately canceled. And then not long after that, Jen and I had planned to go to Nepal to climb Everest, which ultimately got delayed, you know, over a year. But you know, we find ourselves, my family has a small house on the Oregon coast, and we decided to go there, just me, Jenna, and our dog, the three of us. Um, and that's where we ended up spending the pandemic lockdown. And at first, it was kind of like, okay, like this, maybe we needed a little break or, you know, whatever. But it, it was such an uncertain time, right? Like, I, you know, we're supposed to be leaving from Nepal, and all this stuff's canceled. And I don't pretend like my book tour being canceled, or, you know, my Everest expedition being canceled is not like the world's worst problem in that time, more so the energy of what was happening really impacted me, right? Like, I'm, I'm reading the headlines, I'm reading and sitting on my couch, nonstop, like doom scrolling the news, like, this border's closing, these people are dying, like, you know, I'm thinking, like, are my parents safe, my family, okay, what's happening, you know, it's just a really, you know, we all live through this, right? And, you know, ultimately, at one point, you know, I don't know, several weeks into the the pandemic lockdown, Jenna looks over at me and she's like, you know, you haven't like changed out of your pajamas in like four days. And you've just been like sitting on the couch, like staring at your social media, staring at your phone, staring at the news, like winding yourself up. And she was right. You know, I had built up this like deep level of sort of like anxiety and fear inside of my body, which is really quite uncommon for me. But my mental health was definitely significantly jeopardized by not having sort of the general typical momentum you know, of my life, so to speak. And an interesting thing happened. So when I was in Antarctica, although my body got so weak, I lost so much weight. I was burning 10,000 calories a day, but only eating seven and then 5,000 by the end. So, I mean, I was really weak. My ribs were sticking out, my hips were sticking out. And I was pulling my sled every day, 12 hours per day as a way of just barely making enough mileage to you know, stay in the game effectively. And in these 12 hour days of pulling my 375 pound sled, which slowly got lighter over time, Although my body was getting weaker and weaker, my mind kept getting stronger and stronger. Like I actually found these deep places in my mind of flow and inner peace and deep connection to family and friends and community. Like I actually felt like actually very like uplifted because I found these corners of my mind that were very blissful and, and deeply fulfilled and peaceful. And so when I was in this moment of COVID, I started thinking to myself like, man, when was the last time I felt, you know, that way? And I was like, weirdly enough, like it was during this Antarctica crossing is when I actually felt that sort of deeply connected and tapped in. So I said to Jenna, after she pointed out I hadn't changed my, you know, pajamas for however many days, she says, I said, you know what, tomorrow morning, I'm gonna go for a long walk. Like, just, you know, don't worry about me. I'm gonna be gone all day. I'll be back around dinner time." And she's like, yeah, sure. All right, have fun. And so, you know, walking alone was kind of one of the few things you could kind of do during the pandemic, right? And so I walk out our front door. And about 20 minutes in, my phone buzzes in my pocket and I reach down and it's my buddies texting me and I'm about to text him back. And I'm like, what am I doing? Like, I've just been staring at my phone. Like, I don't need to like text my friend back right now on this walk. So I put my phone on airplane mode and I keep walking. 
and I walk all day, 12 hours, no music, no podcast and complete silence um, with myself and my thoughts. And I, and I took lots, you know, I took plenty of breaks. I sat down, whatever, but I was alone with myself all day long. And when I walk back in my front door at the end of that day, around dinner time, you know, my dog jumps up in my lap when I get back in back home and she looks at me and she goes, you're back. And I said, yeah, I told you I was going to come back around dinner time. And she looks at me, she goes, no, 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 you're back. Like she could just see sort of my, my essence, my spirit had to turn. And she was 100% right. And, you know, I didn't necessarily think that this had wide applications. I was like, great. I'm the guy who walked across Antarctica, like by myself, like 12 hours a day, pulling a 375 pound sled, like literally no one in the world had ever done that before. Like, and that taps me back into my own like spirit. But as COVID went on, and we all had this, right, friends, family members, colleagues who were struggling would call me up and I would just share with people. I was like, this might sound weird, but like I felt that same way. And I went just for this long walk by myself. I turned everything off and just kind of tuned into my own thoughts. And by the time I got back to my front door, I felt a lot better. Before I knew it, dozens of people in my community started taking me up, you know, on this, on this challenge, this exercise. And I told people, I was like, look, this is not a race. I don't care how far you go. I don't care if you go for one mile or 50 miles. Like it's about taking a day to yourself in the stillness and silence and unplugging and being alone, walking, moving your body. And like my 77 year old mother-in-law completed it by going, you know, one walk around uh, her block in North Carolina and then sitting on her front porch for an hour and resting. And then one more time around her block, she might've gone a mile or something in all 12 hours. You know, my crazy ultra endurance, you know, buddy, he went 45 miles in 12 hours and neither person was doing it better than the other person. What everyone had in common, people who are athletes, non-athletes, young, old, rich, poor, different circumstances, doesn't matter, is every single person that I've known to take the 12-hour walk has shown back up to their front door, refreshed, renewed, tapped into that, you know, that, that feeling of limitless possibilities with that possible mindset. And so I wrote this book, The 12-Hour Walk, um, to sort of pay homage to this and really put this out to the world as a, you know, not just a book. And the book takes you through all sorts of amazing adventure and travel stories. So it's told through the lens of rich storytelling through many of the adventures that I've been on throughout my life. But at its core, it's a call to action. It's a it's an invitation for people, you know, people that maybe can't fly to the other side of the world or have some personal vision question. I'm like, I'm like, this is out. Like the funny thing about all of this was I was like, I thought I had to go all the way to Antarctica or all the way to Thailand. All this. Like, I love all the trips I've taken. But it turns out that you can also tap into the spirit of adventure and depth in your own soul by just tuning into yourself for a day. And so my mission now is to inspire 10 million people to take the 12 hour walk. And already the book's only been out a couple months and already tens of thousands of people have taken the 12 hour walk, you know, in 40 different countries, every single continent, people have done it. People are doing it every single day. Um, you know, there's a whole website at 12 hourwalkcom and an app that helps, you know, track your walking as your phone's in airplane mode. Um, and it's beautiful. And it's just a, a free, completely free, accessible way um, that I found to really unlock a lot lot of people's, you know, challenges and whatever current moment in their life and tap back into the the essence of their being. Do you think it matters if you are walking in the city as opposed to a beautiful outdoor area? Like no, in fact, in fact, I uh, encourage people, um, you know, people have done this in all different settings. Um, but I actually, no matter where you live, Manhattan, you know, a big city, a rural place, I really encourage people to walk out their front door. Um, certainly, if you want to, you know, go on some beautiful nature trail, and that's what you know, you're excited about, I'm not going to tell you not to do that. But I encourage people to walk outside their front door for a couple of reasons. One is I don't want someone to put this on like, oh, I'm going on vacation to Hawaii in six months. And I'm going to do my walk in this beautiful thing. It's like, great. That starts, that becomes part of your vacation. Meaning that becomes, I'm not saying don't take the trip, but that becomes part of your other, like my other mm -hmm. world. When I'm on vacation, I do things where I take care of myself, et cetera. Doing it at your house 
on a Saturday when you get somebody to watch your kids or whatever, kind of in the flow of your normal life, imprints differently in two ways. One, you actually proved yourself that in the flow of sort of your quote unquote normal life, you can do that. But also because of the physical proximity, we spend a lot of our time within a few miles of our own house. Naturally, we usually work by our house somewhere. Or we socialize or we go to church or you know, what are all the things that you do like in your local community, right? And when you walk out your front door, what ends up happening is you end up walking around, of course, the streets nearby your house. Now you might get, you know, dozen miles away from your house by the, you know, halfway through or whatever, and then you come back. And what I found is that so many people, the, for the feedback they gave me, I'm so glad I walked out my front door because a week later when I was driving to work and I ended up at this intersection, I immediately flashed back to hour five when I was having this like deep insight. Or I walked around the neighborhood and it's actually the town where I grew up. And I walked past all these old landmarks in my life and like I looked at my middle school and I had these deep memories about this or these reflections on my childhood home or whatever. Like basically the, the imprint to have the ripple effect of the experience having a ripple effect further on into your life is more potent and powerful I have found. And in terms of city noise to your questions, like your silence is your commitment to that, your <laughs> commitment to being like, I'm not, you know, chatting people up. I'm not literally like I'm out here, but like if you're in New York city, like obviously there's going to be all sorts of like ambient street noise around like that's fine but you're committing to sort of being within yourself and i go further to that like you know people ask me do i have to carry all my food all my water and that's like this like use your best judgment like if you know there's going to be a gas station or convenience store in a couple miles and you you pop in there to grab a you know grab a bottle of water or go to the bathroom or something like it's totally fine if the shop clerk says oh that's three dollars and you say here you go and they say thank you it's not like you blew up the 12-hour walk that's a lot you know the common sense difference between if you chat to that guy for 20 minutes like i'm doing this walk and da, da, da. let me tell you all about my life like now maybe you've broken the solitude a little bit but having some really light and brief interactions in the context of a full day when you're mostly deeply committed to the silence and solitude um is 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 equally powerful i've been in new york for 10 years now almost and I try and do this thing once a year that I call Hike Manhattan, mm -hmm. <laughs> where you get up really early, take a train all the way to the top of Manhattan Island and start off just to start walking all the way down. Yeah. So usually it involves various different stops. So the Cloisters Museum, then we go down through Harlem, stop somewhere for lunch, and then down and down Times Square, usually yeah. Times Square, uh -huh. through Chelsea, through the West Village. And it's like various stops for like cocktails or whatever you want. And then you end up down by the Brooklyn Bridge and it takes probably about 12 hours and you're like in a lot of pain by the end, like my low yeah. back is hurting. Um, but it's like my favorite thing to do. It's such a fun way to see the city. And I've never done it solo, but maybe I will now. Great. Yeah. I mean, New York City, I I'm there all the time and it's one of my favorite places on the planet. It's definitely my favorite city in the world. Um, and I love walking around New York to me, like Manhattan is like the, best, the best walking, like it's the, <laughs> the best, best, best walking. Yeah. I've had people do tons of people have done the 12 hour walk in Manhattan. People have done it, you know, like what you're doing from North to South. Um, or I've had people walk like the entire circumference of the Island or, you know, various other things. So yeah. So trust me, I walk around New York's the best and you notice so many different things and you pass, yes. through, you know, obviously there's a difference when you, like, you pass through Harlem and you see the grand or this, and all of a sudden you're in the West village or, and so, I mean, obviously the different pockets, they all have their own personality and flavor. And it's fun to just meander your way through. There's so much different sort of culture and diversity and things like that in a city like that. It's amazing. It really is. So what's next for you? 
yeah, I don't have the next, uh, you know, epic, epic, uh, big expedition planned. I don't usually announce them until right before I'm doing them. So I'm always, I'm always cooking up all sorts of things, but, uh, yeah, really passionate about the 12 hour walk right now. Really passionate about spreading the word, uh, around that. Um, and there's a, a number of other, other things, you know, coming up in my life that I'm excited about, but, uh, definitely travel and the impact of travel will certainly continue to be a through line, whether that's through adventure, whether that's through just shared experiences with people that I love and cultures that I still want to explore. There's there's just infinite possibilities out in the world. And travel has certainly been uh, a great way to unlock that, even when sometimes like the Thailand accident doesn't go exactly the way you drew it up. There's still uh, some deep lessons to be learned from the entire process. And where can people find you and all of your work on the internet? Yeah, my personal website's colinobrady.com. That's kind of yeah, books, my public speaking, all that kind of stuff. And then the 12hourwalk.com is all things 12hour walk. So go check that out if you're interested. Um, I certainly uh, recommend buying the book. You can buy the books, all my both my books, you know, anywhere books are sold, Amazon, your local bookstore, Barnes & Noble, et cetera. It's, it's everywhere. But also, you know, more than anything, I'm excited to just get people signed up for the walk. You know, it's, it's free. It's out your front door. But go to the 12hourwalk.com to become an official finisher. It takes you five seconds to put in your name and pick a date, but you know, you're sort of 90% more likely to actually do a thing if you put it on your calendar and commit to it. Um, and so I've, I've done that little bit extra of that. And if you do sign up for that, I end up um, not in a spammy way, but become a, your, your coach a little bit in your inbox. So I'll send you a few tips and tricks and FAQs to really encourage you along your journey as you, uh, you know, the subtitle of the book is a 12 hour walk, invest one day, conquer your mind and unlock your best life. So uh, 12 hours, powerful, powerful tool. And it's been fun to see how it's been proliferating around the world and encourage everyone listening to uh, join the global movement at 12hourwalk.com. I love it. Such a cool project. Oh, Colin, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. It's really fun. Likewise. Um, Before you go, do you have time for a quick fire round? Yeah, let's do it. All right, let's jump in. What's the one thing every person should experience in their lifetime? Falling in love. What's the one thing you never travel without? My journal. Mm, you're a journaler. I guess you got to write, you got to have some like material for your new book, you know? <laughs> I've been journaling since I was a little kid. I have journals from like all the way back to like 12 years yeah. old. I've been an avid journaler for like 20 plus years. Yeah. Oh, I, I was an avid journaler from age 11 until about 23. And then I just fell off. Yeah, which is dumb. Well, but it's when I always, kind of when I started. Pick it back up. Yeah, because I, I started writing professionally. And I think then I was like, I spent right. all my day writing. I don't want to writing do anyways, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Top training tip for somebody who wants to do like a big mountaineering type adventure. Yeah, I think that it, you know, I always think that it's, um, it's one thing to have a big goal in Everest or, you know, Mount Rainier, or Mount, you know, big, whatever's a big mountain to you, but also don't get overwhelmed by the goal, like set the big goal. And then what's the micro thing you can do? Like, is it just like, can I start walking? Can I start hiking a little bit? Can I join the local gym? I mean, depending on where you don't be so hard on yourself, just, I always say like, take the first step and then take one step after that. Um, and you know, slowly you'll get there. If you could teleport anywhere for the day, where would you go? And what would you do? Is it just any day of the year? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> well, Burning Man's my favorite place. So I would teleport to uh, Burning Man at sunrise. <laughs> oh, did you go this year? Yeah. Every year. Are you ready? How many of years have you been? Uh, like the last five. Well, it didn't happen for a couple of years, but over the last five years. I try to go every year now since like five years back. Uh, I went like twice. I think I went in 2015 and 2016. Yeah. Yeah. So much fun. So, I so much there. fun. It's pretty <laughs> magical. Good choice. 
if you could set off on a 12 hour walk anywhere in the world, where would it be? Mm, that's a good question. Since I've already done it at home in New York, two of my favorite walking places, uh, maybe, uh, let's see, Bhutan. I've never been to Bhutan and the trails there and everything looks insane. So that's right. A 12 hour walk in Bhutan, like up to like the tiger's nest or whatever that place is called. Yes, that would be that epic. Yeah. A recommendation for a book, podcast or a movie to stay entertained on a long journey. Shantaram. And if you like audiobooks, it's like the literal, I mean, it's the most amazing book and I've read it, uh, like the actual words, because I love reading, I'm an avid reader, but it's also the most like incredible audiobook. There's so many, this guy does like all these different voices from like British to New Zealand to Indian or whatever. It's like the most like insanely well voice acted uh, book ever. It's like 40 hours. It's so long, but it's like, you don't like at the end of 40 hours, you're like, I don't want it to stop because like such an epic Shantaram. Have you been watching the TV series? I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it yet. Yeah. I just started it it's because yeah. um, it's one of my favorite books as well. So I'm like, eh, yeah. I don't know if it's not gonna be as good as the book, but yeah. I like Charlie Hunnam. So I'm down yeah. to watch it. <laughs> so, so don't so far so good. Like, are we, are we happy? With yeah, it? it's okay. I don't know. Yeah. It's just not. They've the tried to make so it a amazing. movie too. And it just doesn't land. Like the book is just like so Sprawling. rich. And yeah, yeah, it really is amazing. Okay. Finally, what's your idea of the perfect chill vacation? Mm, perfect chill <laughs> vacation. I know I'm not I'm not that into like cruise ships or just like sitting at an all-inclusive resort or anything like that. That's not really my thing. But I grew up part of my life on the North Shore of Kauai. So um wow. that that's uh, a lot of my a lot of my heart lives there. So you can you can have some beautiful chill times going to local farmers market, relaxing, put dipping your feet in the ocean, going for a swim. Um and then of course if you want to be a little more adventurous, hiking, biking, swimming, surfing, all that. But yeah, it's one of my Perfect. favorite places to go chill. Amazing. Thank you, Colin. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. I hope you liked it. We'll be back in two weeks' time with more inspiring travel stories for your ears. In the meantime, you can learn more about us by visiting fulltimetravel.co or following us on Instagram at full underscore time underscore travel. If you have a story you want to share on the trip that changed me, drop us a line and please be sure to rate, review and follow so we can keep this adventure going.